Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello and welcome to the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Julia Raby and Anushka Hamda. On today's show, we're diving into what Lassa fever is after cases were recently reported in the UK. We'll be hearing about new research breaking down time in millimetres. And, real or fake, could you pick out the face of an actual human being from those generated by AI? Chances are, probably not. And later on, we will be putting microscopy under the microscope, from the first glimpses of life up close to stepping inside the lens and experiencing microscopic specimens in virtual reality. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Last week, the UK declared its first brush for more than a decade with a rare tropical disease, similar in some ways to Ebola, called Lassa fever. An individual returned with the infection following a trip abroad and subsequently transmitted it to another family member. This also led to the infection of their newborn baby, which tragically died. Because the diagnosis was only confirmed later, there were many healthcare workers at two hospitals who'd cared for the victims when they first became ill, but may not have used the level of personal protective equipment required to defend against infections of this sort. As a result, a massive contact tracing effort has been launched to ensure that all those staff members remain safe and to prevent any further onward transmission of the infection. The downside of doing this is that other healthcare activities have had to be limited, owing to staff isolating. To tell us more about Lassa fever and the history of its discovery, study, origins and impacts on our health, here are Julia Ravi and Harry Lewis. Lassa fever gets its name from the town in Nigeria where the first cases were officially documented in January 1969. A nurse, Laura Wine, working in the Lassa Mission Hospital, fell ill shortly after looking after a pregnant patient with what appeared to be the same disease. Both had a high fever and flu-like symptoms, severe fatigue, pains in the chest and muscles, and more alarmingly, bleeding from their gums. Sites where blood samples were drawn continued to bleed afterwards. Despite being airlifted to a bigger hospital, Laura Wine died the next day. Shortly after, two other nurses who had been caring for her themselves became ill, and one of them also died. The other, Lily Pinho, was flown to New York, where she subsequently recovered in an isolation unit. The pattern of spread and the timing with which the cases develop symptoms suggests to the medical team that a hitherto unknown virus might be behind the cases. They sent the samples from Lily Pineo and the other victims in Nigeria to a number of labs, including a specialist team at Yale University, headed by Spanish doctor Georgie Castells, who had set up a unit there to study, identify and classify exotic diseases. Regrettably, and perhaps as a reminder of the power of the genie that they were trying to coax from its bottle, within three months, the virus nearly claimed its next victim. Casals himself developed the infection. Complaining of severe cold-like symptoms and a running fever, he was placed into isolation and tests confirmed that he was positive for the very virus he was trying to study. In an ironic twist of fate... Having been the source of the virus that could kill him, the now convalescing Lily Pineo then came to the rescue by allowing doctors to transfuse him with antibodies collected from her blood. 
The intervention appeared to work, and once he recovered, together with colleague Sonia Buckley, Casals was able to resume work on the virus, leading, within a year, to its successful isolation and identification, which they published together in the journal Nature. His own brush with Lassa fever meant that Casals was in no doubt about the infectious and dangerous nature of this agent, and his other major contribution was to lay the foundations of many of the biosafety protocols used today to safeguard against laboratory and hospital spread of infectious diseases. Relying on these techniques, scientists have since been able to learn a lot more about Lassa fever in the subsequent 50 years. We now know it's naturally carried by mouse species native to a number of countries in West Africa. Once the mouse picks up the virus, it becomes a lifelong carrier, shedding the infection in urine and faeces. Humans exposed to this material, for instance when cleaning or sweeping, can inhale the infectious debris, which can also make its way into cuts or other breaches in the skin. The symptoms usually take from a few days to a few weeks to kick in. And, again usually, a fever is the most characteristic feature. A flu-like illness is common and because the virus attacks the linings of blood vessels, blood clotting can be affected, which is why some develop bleeding from their gums, back passage and even sometimes their eyes. Like many infections though, Lassa is more severe in pregnancy and often transmits to the developing baby, usually lethally. Surprisingly, though, over 80% of the half a million cases that occur in endemic areas of West Africa each year are asymptomatic. About a fifth of cases are more severe and about 5% of cases end up in hospital. The mortality rate is about one person in every hundred. The virus is present in blood and other body fluids, including urine, for several weeks. Men can continue to shed the Lassa virus in seminal fluid for several months after they recover, meaning that sexual transmission of this infection is well documented. People caring for Lassa fever patients therefore need to take steps to avoid exposure to any of these body fluids. We can test for Lassa fever using PCR to detect the genetic material of the virus, or we can look for antibodies to the virus in the blood. But there are no treatments for Lassa infection other than supportive therapy to keep patients hydrated and stable while they recover. The antiviral drug ribavirin is sometimes used, but the evidence for its effects is quite weak. At the moment, there is no vaccine for Lassa, although experimental agents were developed in the past and appear to be effective. Perhaps, some are saying, the very useful RNA technology developed to help combat COVID-19 can be brought to bear against Lassa 2 in the future. Let's hope so. Harry Lewis and Julia Raby on the story of Lassa fever. C.S. Lewis once said, the future is something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour. But is that always true? While it certainly seems that time runs slowly whenever I'm in a boring meeting... Physics tells us that, in fact, the passage of time is not as constant as we once thought. Professor Jun Yi and his team at the University of Colorado are building incredibly precise atomic clocks to try to measure these distortions in time, as Robert Spencer found out. In the 2014 movie Interstellar, the protagonists visit a planet deep in the gravitational pull of a black hole. Despite spending only a few hours on the surface... When they return to their colleague in his spacecraft, they find two decades have gone by. People find that hard to believe that time is all relative, there's no absolute time. It's called time dilation, and it all depends on where you're standing. The key is gravity. Space and time are interconnected. When we get close to a massive body, both space and time will be curved. That massive body could be a planet or a star. Curved space causes objects to fall towards the body, like a ball falling to the ground or a spacecraft into a black hole. The curvature of time is more mind-boggling. As you approach a massive body, the time that you measure will slow down. It's all a result of Einstein's theory of general relativity. But it's not just a bunch of equations on a blackboard or a plot point for sci-fi. This was a theory. However, it's been tested over the time and it found to be consistent with experimental findings. To test this theory, all you need is to take a clock to a place with weaker gravity and one to a place with stronger gravity and compare how fast they tick. For example, objects in orbit will clock up a different amount of time to us on the surface of the Earth. And the atomic clocks on board of satellites need to take into account of this time dilation effect. In fact, if they didn't, GPS would stop working in a matter of hours. 
But we don't need to go to a black hole or even into space at all to measure this effect. If I put a clock upstairs in my living room and one downstairs in my bedroom, there's a difference. Clock downstairs will tick slower than the clock upstairs because downstairs you are closer to the center of the Earth. And that's why I was late to work this morning. My alarm was delayed due to relativistic effects. That's not necessarily true. <laughs> no, perhaps not. The effect would be so tiny that we wouldn't be able to detect it. Or could we? Junyi has been building the world's most precise clocks, and he's gotten pretty good at it. Unlike clocks we may think of, which use, say, the ticking of a pendulum to measure time, Yi's clocks use the ticking of electrons around atoms. The atom we use is called a strontium atoms. They use lasers shooting very precise photons at these atoms to interrogate them. We can use the frequency of the photon as a handle to tell the time. And with high accuracy in measuring time comes the ability to measure the slightest of changes in gravity. In fact, rather than needing the tens of hundreds of miles to satellites or the few yards to upstairs, Yi's team can measure the difference in gravity between two clocks separated by just a mere millimeter. Yes, that's right, one millimeter. The difference in the speed of time here is close to nothing. Each second, the lower clock loses zero point. Zero 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 zero. This goes on for a while. Zero 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 one. That's nineteen zeros. So this is this incredibly precise. But Junyi and his team are not satisfied with simply measuring gravity and time to this level of accuracy. By measuring the curving of space itself, he hopes to build tools with very real applications. So you can turn that into a geological survey tools to sense the changing Earth. By measuring how the mass moving underground distorts time itself, he hopes to be able to predict volcanic eruptions or measure glaciers melting, or perhaps we could measure changes in gravity not caused by normal mass. We may be able to shed light on the mysterious matters called a dark matter that's in our universe but has eluded our detection. But perhaps the most incredible is that when you start measuring gravity on such small scales, you start to probe the relationship between general relativity and quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics describes microscopic part of the world: how atoms, how photons, electrons evolve. General relativity typically are associated with the macroscopic view of the world. And getting these two theories to play along together has left physicists scratching their heads for decades. Now, measuring the intersection of these models seems within reach. So it will be fantastic if we can start to connect the very microscopic world of quantum mechanics with the very macroscopic world of general relativity. The gravity of this discovery cannot be understated. It may bend our understanding of atoms, space, and time itself, or perhaps it will just confirm what we thought to higher and higher precision, or something in between. It's all relative. That was Robert Spencer with Jun Yi, and you can read all about that research in the journal Nature. From baffling British weather, sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here, to looking at a cheetah from the inside out, games making their way to the clinic, and what to eat in your garden.、Mm. The Naked Scientists in Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com/short, or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. We have entered into a new era of technological advancement. Mechanical evolution may appear to have slowed down to the likes of you and I, but in the world of computer science, there's an unprecedented increase in novel developments. Part of this is down to the computing community's open access ethos. Domains like GitHub allow users to share, tweak, and comment on new softwares. But there is a dark side to this genius, as Sophie Nightingale from the University of Lancaster explains to Harry Lewis. They start by looking at a website you can visit too. It's called. This person does not exist. dot com. Type that in. <laughs> I, I, you're telling me this, this is this person doesn't. This is genuinely true. This person doesn't exist because I'm confronted by a Caucasian blonde female, and she looks maybe in her mid twenties, and she looks completely real. Sophie, I couldn't help <laughs> this at all. It looks like it's straight off a of Facebook or something like that, a LinkedIn profile maybe. Absolutely, yeah. No, that is somebody who does not exist in the world. Okay, and so let's break this down. 
we're talking about these being synthesized by a type of algorithm, by what we're calling artificial intelligence. What does that consist of? Yeah, this is a, a type of machine learning, and it's a relatively new type known as generative adversarial networks or GANs. And what's quite special about these is they use two neural networks and those networks are pitted against each other. So imagine almost like a two player game where you're in battle with your opponent. Uh, One of those networks is a generator. The other is a discriminator. The discriminator is given sort of a large collection or corpus of real images. And in this case, uh, we're talking about images of faces of people who are real. And then the generator's task is to to try and synthesize an image that's good enough that it manages to trick the discriminator into believing it's a real face. Over time, it receives feedback from the discriminator and it will refine its parameters and eventually generate a face that the discriminator can't, can't actually tell apart from those real images anymore. So, so if you were to start this off, then that means that you write the algorithm, you give it the information it needs to begin, and then you step back and you leave these two networks all by themselves. There's no longer any human interaction. Absolutely. Yeah, this is what's known as unsupervised machine learning. So there, there's no need for a human to do anything once you've given it the, you know, the original corpus of images. And in your research, you found that the average person trusts these synthesized faces sometimes more than images of real life people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So on average, we found that people's ratings of the synthetic faces were slightly higher than the real faces. Now, it wasn't a huge difference, but it was it was significant. Why is that so exciting at the moment? And why is it also quite terrifying? So this is an incredible advance in terms of technological capability. And there's definitely potential to use these for good, right? So, for example, we can use and apply these to security and defence settings. But there's also the the flip side of how, you know, making this technology accessible to everybody and sharing it openly means that there's a lot of potential for harm as well, for revenge porn, uh, fraud, including financial fraud, adding to disinformation and misinformation on social media, Uh, And many other ways, novel ways that perhaps we're not even yet aware of. Uh, And and the other thing is the liar's dividend, of course. So actually it allows for any unwelcome recording that is in the media to be denied by somebody. So they can simply just call in to question its authenticity. So it gives that potential as well. I, I get the impression that what you're alluding to might be the future of where this technology goes. It's not just perhaps limited to pictures in the future it could go into I guess sources of video content and audio content absolutely that's exactly right so I would say we're not far off and looking to the future you know is your research I get the impression it's sort of a call to arms if if nothing else the main thing I want to get across is that we need to do something about this and we could build and embed watermarks into images and, and video synthesis networks that down the line, when we when these come into play, we can check that and actually have a way of reliably identifying if it's a, a synthetic image or video. Uh, so, you know, and it's important to do this now because it's likely that other forms of AI synthesized content, for example, audio, video, are on the path to being indistinguishable from real content as well. You know, once that technology is released, we can't take it back. Once it's in the world, we can't then put it back into, into a box. Scary stuff there. And if you still need to be convinced, take a look at the gallery of computer-generated people at thispersondoesnotexist.com and I guarantee you, you will be surprised. I definitely was. Sophie Nightingale was talking about the work she's just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Studying how the human body works is no mean feat and trying to figure out how the heart our automatically beating, life-dependent organ functions requires scientists to think outside of the box. Julia spoke to Kit Parker from Harvard University, who's making waves with his novel approach to understanding how our heart cells operate. Almost every second we're alive, our heart beats. This process is automatic, orchestrated by the cardiac cells which make up our blood-pumping organ. Kit studies how these cells work and came up with a somewhat unconventional way of doing so. 
Morphologically, it looks like a fish. Functionally, it looks like a fish. Genetically, it's human. He got his inspiration to do this from a trip with his daughter. In the New England Aquarium in Boston, there's a display of jellyfish. And I was watching these things swimming around. And I was thinking, man, that thing's pumping just like the ventricle in the heart. And I said, I bet I could build that. Using heart cells, Kit wanted to see if he could mimic the pumping of these marine organisms to learn about how the heart functions. So we built a jellyfish and that was quite a scene because we took a rat apart and we rebuilt it as a jellyfish. So it was alive and swimming around. Next up on Kit's list, after another aquarium trip, a stingray. I said, well, I bet I can build that one too. You know, now my daughter's always teasing me. Oh, you going to build it, daddy? You gonna, whatever I see something cool, you going to build that? You think you can build that? Why Kit is keen to use heart cells to build constructs in the lab is to improve regenerative medicine, a field which aims to build human hearts and other organs in the lab to give to people who need them. But a lot of focus in this area has been elsewhere. Mostly it boils down to trying to replicate the anatomy, but there's some pretty complex biophysics there in the heart. So we decided to pick a couple of principles of cardiac biophysics and build a very simple model of the fish, and we chose the zebrafish. Kit and his team made a pacemaker, a bundle of cells like what we have in our own heart to alter how fast or slow it beats. This pacemaker is called a genode. They then constructed two parallel layers of heart cells derived from human stem cells embedded in gelatin with a fin across them to balance and set them off beating. And if you give a little bit of a tickle to the genode, it sends a wave of excitation through the tissue and that's what causes it to contract. When the pacemaker kicks in, the heart cells in one layer contract, stretching the other layer over to the side, which then prompts it to contract, creating this swishing back and forth like a fish's tail, which allows it to swim. And they could keep this up for a while. They would swim for weeks on end. So for about four and a half months, you know, they would swim with the same velocity. This is a big advance, Julia, because when you're born... The number of cells you have in your heart two days after you leave the womb is the same the rest of your life unless you have a heart attack and some of them die. So those cells have to rebuild themselves as they grow and as they pump. It's thought human heart cells rebuild themselves every 20 days. When our fish that were pumping for 108 days, that means they rebuilt themselves five times. That's a big deal. Multiple healthy rebuilds while the cells are functioning in the lab is a good sign for Kit's overall goal. Eventually, what we want to do is we want to build up a heart for a a child that's born with a malformed heart and building with biophysics, understand those as design criteria and the longevity of the tissues that we build are two big important steps for us. And we think we learned a lot from that. But sadly, the human fish are no more. They were a lot of work for Kit and his team. It's like having a child, right? You know, like a child, you got to feed it, change the diaper every day, a baby, right? It's kind of the same thing with these fish. So you're going to come into the lab every day. So after a while, you're just like, this thing's never going to stop. So people are always disappointed when I tell them, they say, well, what are you going to do with the fish now? I'm like, nothing. It's over. We're never going to build another one. It was a training exercise to see how good we were at building human cardiac tissue. Before I can build a heart that goes into a sick child, because it's game on when that happens, there's no turning back. I had to continually test myself to see how good of an engineer I am. So these marine organisms, by going to more and more complex anatomies, we test ourselves as engineers to do this. This is a pretty new field of science. It's a cross between marine zoology and robotics, so maybe zoobotics is the word for it. I don't know. But by using this technique to build more complex marine creatures, this can hopefully tell us more about how our own hearts work. The idea of using robotic design as a scientific instrument, the same way we use a microscope, is a really cool concept to me. That is definitely a different kettle of fish. We're excited to see which creature will be the next addition to the human-made aquarium. That was Julia Ravy reporting on research published in Science. Washing our hands has become paramount during the pandemic, but the Romans didn't seem to hold any importance to this, resulting in parasitic infections. Anushka spoke to Sophie Rabineau to tell us more. I'm glad I've never had to think about whether a pot has remnants of poo in it. Until now. (laughs) 
conical pots found near public latrines were previously thought to be storage jars and have actually turned out to be chamber pots from the 5th century, portaloos for ancient festivals. Archaeologists at the University of Cambridge have found parasite eggs known as whipworms within the crusty materials residing within these chamber pots from 1,500 years ago. This makes me think, will the disgusting portaloos that we find at festivals be investigated in 1,500 years' time? I really hope not. But how did these parasites survive for so long? And what did they look like? The eggs are protected by a tough external shell, which is similar in composition to the exoskeleton of insects. The sample initially looked like a bit of grey dust. These were analysed by the theme of this week, microscopes. The researchers used a microscope and found eight parasitic eggs, which concluded that this pot was indeed a chamber pot. I mean, that's a bit disgusting knowing that what you've put some stuff in has had faecal matter in there before. And I would be really resistant to working with poo. So how do archaeologists get over this hump? Archaeologists find faecal matter in general fascinating because it carries so much information about people in the past. These particular samples were quite nice, but I have to admit that some of my other samples are quite moist and smelly. Poo and wee isn't something you'd want to think about on a regular basis, and the Romans didn't seem to either. Talk about pooing where you eat. The whipworm infections may have been acquired from the Romans eating with their fingers or from them eating fruits or veggies that were poorly washed and may have been manured with uncomposted or poorly composted feces. At least our hygiene habits have improved since Roman times. That was Sophie Rabineau at the University of Cambridge talking about her research that was published last week in the Journal of Archaeological Science Reports. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. For the rest of the episode, we are going to be getting up close and personal with our own cells by exploring microscopy. And not only are we looking down the microscope, we're getting inside our own specimens. You are? Well, I've spent the week walking around inside a human immune cell. I'm sorry, that, that doesn't really help me here. What are you on about? How? Well, it's, it's been a bit of a journey and it started around 350 years ago. Sitzke Franzen from the Max Planck Institute for Art History and Keith Moore from the Royal Society gave me an insight into the man who had the first glimpses of life under the microscope, Anthony von Leeuwenhoek. Well, I'm very excited to hear about what he saw. There is a possible link with his profession. He was a cloth merchant and cloth merchants used magnifying glasses to look at the cloth they were buying and selling because they could count the number of threads per say square centimeter that would say something about the quality of the cloth that they were trying to to buy and sell. Maybe his interest came out of his day job so to speak but at the same time he was definitely doing science for what he would have described as in some way doing science and I'm saying that because he was really keen on on writing his experiences or describing his experiences to the fellows of the Royal Society. And he wanted to be part of that crowd in a way. People often say about Anthony von Leonhoek that he was secretive. And he was secretive about one thing, and that is how he made his microscopes. What was his microscope? How did he make it? What does it look like? How big is it? Nothing you would think of. If you now think of your binocular microscope that you might have used at school, it's a very tiny instrument. It's about four or five centimeters in height. There are two metal plates in between which there is a small glass ball, which is the lens. What kind of specimens did he look at? He looked at everything. 
So the first experiments that Leonuk is sending to the Royal Society are of a bee, of a louse. But very soon after, he also starts to look at bodily fluids, so blood, sperm, saliva. He takes a lot of his things that are immediately on him or around him because he also looks at his own hair, all tiny things that he can put on that microscope. When were they found and have they been replicated since? We know that he sent the whole set of them to the Royal Society and they've gone missing. The ones that have been found, some of them are already longer seen as original microscopes and others have more recently been discovered. It's only discovered in the past few years how he actually made his lenses. Because, of course, the of the few microscopes we have left are made with drops glass. So it's a little glass ball. And the melting of glass and making a small drop is not hard. However, Leeuwenhoek was grinding them. He was a showman. I think also he saw it as a case of pride to be accepted by people like the Fellows of the Royal Society. What better way to understand Leeuwenhoek than to go to the Royal Society to see if I could have a look at these letters myself. I met up with Keith Moore, who brought out four massive volumes of letters. We can start at the very beginning here. There are drawings in the margins sometimes, so they're all coming from Delft, and you can see the date on this one very clearly, 7th of April, 1674. So this is the beginning of his series of researches sent to the Royal Society. What you get here are not just textual descriptions of what's happening, but also drawings. And he sent them over so that the observation could be seen as a visual resource, in addition to being a textual one. And he also, at certain points, sent over packets of specimens so that fellows of the Royal Society in their meetings could try and replicate the observation. I've heard that he's looked at his own blood, semen, sweat... Did he send those over? No, uh, happily not. I mean, he used his own body as a means of finding things to look at under the microscope. It must have been an absolutely wonderful time to be a scientist, this, because almost whatever you looked at under the microscope would be something new, something that no one had seen before. And therefore, Leeuwenhoek and his whole generation of microscopists, they were really pushing a new frontier. So let's have a look at some of the images. This is dated... January 1680 from Delft, and it's to Robert Hooke, because by this time he's the secretary of the Royal Society, and Leighton Hooke is sending material over to him. Very beautiful drawings. He wouldn't have done them himself, of course, so Leighton Hooke would have handed his microscope over to an artist, and, and it was quite collaborative. What else are we seeing on this page here? So we can see a centipede. That's right, centipede or a millipede. You've got a little fly here, got some grubs as there are. I mean, Leeuwenhoek's letters very often send multiple observations. So it's not just one thing. He'll incorporate several different things into a letter. So he's just going out into the world with this microscope in his pocket. That's absolutely right, yeah. What is this thing made of? How does it work? What's it, in terms of living creatures, what are the structures that, that make up this thing? Can I have a flick through these books? You can, yes. Leeuwenhoek did develop other kinds of microscope, uh, things like water microscopes, so he could look at things that were living. But these are seeing things on around a millimetre scale. It depended on the type of microscope Leeuwenhoek was using. So he manufactured different types of lens depending upon what he wanted to look at. Uh, so there are very high resolution instruments. I mean, if you're getting down to, to looking at bacteria, that is high resolution. But for most workaday things, he could, he could use a, a lesser resolution. So he was using microscopes that were designed and made for a particular purpose. Is that a whole fish? That's a whole fish, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's presumably quite a small one, but he's looking at some of the structural elements as, as well. There we go, one, one rat's testicle. <laughs> but it looks like there's loads of swirls here and waves, and I'm guessing that's just the tissue. 
That's right, yeah. So you're just seeing tissue floating in, in liquid there. Yeah. So Leuvenhoek goes from looking at a whole fish all the way down to bacteria. Not only has he grafted lenses for different kinds of microscopy, but he can look through that whole range. He was a, a remarkable individual, and not just a good scientist and observer, but a remarkable artisan for being able to construct things like that uh, in order to, to observe such a range of material. Sounds like you had an absolute ball. It was testing, that's for sure. <laughs> It seems Leeuwenhoek's microscopes are much smaller than those you'd see in a biology lab. Are such small microscopes still useful today? Actually, yes. So now you can 3D print microscopes. We have Dr Richard Bowman from the University of Bath on the line to tell us a little more. So Richard, 3D printed microscopes are not what comes to mind when I think about getting a closer look at samples. How did you design these microscopes and what have you been using them for? Thanks. Well, there are quite a lot of nice ways to make a very simple but very powerful microscope, like, for example, taking a webcam for bits. But often the really hard part is the mechanics. And it's exactly the same challenge that uh, Leeuwenhoek would have had, which is that you've got to point the microscope at the right bit of your sample and then bring it into focus nicely. Big microscopes do this with lots of very nicely made sliding mechanisms. And one Friday afternoon in the lab, I was curious how much of that you could do with a 3D printer. And it turns out that if you use bending of the plastic rather than sliding, you can build more or less all of the mechanics of a pretty capable microscope with a single 3D printed part. It started as a bit of fun, but actually it turns out it's useful in lots of places. If you want to put a microscope in an incubator or a fume hood, or even if you want to take a microscope to places where they're very difficult to get hold of. And so a lot of our work is with colleagues in Tanzania, where we're hoping to make them the first commercial producer of microscopes for medical diagnostics in the country. I was going to say, like, why would you 3D print a small microscope rather than use a microscope typically seen in the lab? So are these microscopes used widely outside of a laboratory setting? Yeah, they're used all over the place. And because we released it as an open source hardware design, actually... I don't know where they all are, which is a large part of the fun of it. We recently clocked them in over 30 countries from a brief survey of our forum. And they're used everywhere from community groups to university research labs. And we are evaluating them for medical uses at the moment. Although I should uh, say they've not quite achieved the certification necessary to actually use them on patients yet. Wow, microscopes popping up all over the shop there. But a 3D printer, it's not that easy to come by not something you see every day so how accessible are these microscopes for the areas that they've been designed to be used for i mean i was really surprised we've been working with our tanzanian colleagues for about five years now and actually their business started out or at least the bit of it that i got to know was selling 3d printers and they were locally manufactured often made with locally available materials and ideally quite a lot of recycled parts from e-waste. So, yeah, they didn't look exactly like the printer that was in my lab, but they could get hold of them. And actually, if you compare the cost of a typical 3D printer with the cost of a typical lab microscope, you only have to print one before you've broken even. That is super interesting. And it's amazing how you're both using technology and also it sounds like sustainability as well. But what are your what is your big hope for the future with these 3D printed microscopes? I think the real aim of the project is about reproducibility and accessibility of this kind of science. So I would love for labs that are currently priced out of being able to do exciting microscopy, whether that's in hospital settings or in research settings, to be able to enter there. And not just to sort of accept what we've put out there, but actually to take ownership of the project and do something exciting with it. And in the same way, it's really great to see people use the Open Flexure Microscope as a, a platform to build more exciting instruments on top of. And what I hope is that pushing this approach will get us back to the way that science was often done, where we would replicate each other's experiments as a matter of course, which is often very hard to do these days. Brilliant. Well, we'll definitely be looking out for the microscopes and their use in the future. Thank you so much there to Richard Bowman. 
can't believe you can print a microscope. But surely we need other instruments to let us really see the details of, say, our own cells. Well, there are different types of microscopes that let us see finer and finer details of small specimens like human cells. How big was that immune cell you said you were supposedly standing in? That immune cell, called a T-cell, was about 10 microns in size. Now that's about 10 times smaller than the width of a human hair. And the proteins on that cell are even smaller than that. So how do you look at them? Well, using light, lasers, tags and electrons to zoom in further and further on these pretty small cells. Ed Sanders from the Lee Lab at the University of Cambridge walked me through these imaging techniques. Anushka, you didn't tell me we were going to play laser tag. I've headed over to the Department of Chemistry to have a look at a human T-cell under a microscope. T-cells are a set of white blood cells that are part of the immune system. They're activated when fighting infections and foreign particles. You can imagine them as a bodyguard of sorts, which comes out when those cold COVID particles come and attack. It's quite important to know how T-cells make these decisions and how the decisions downstream would lead to either someone fighting off a disease or, in the case of vaccines, how the vaccine would work is all due to your T-cells recognising something and then priming itself for a later infection. We know that T-cell triggering would lead to the immune response. Those very initial stages are actually very poorly understood, and partially this is because of a lack of tools to look at them properly. Now, there are certain tools that we can use to help us understand the initial stages, and microscopy bears a large burden of this. There are various kinds of microscopy, electron microscopy and fluorescence microscopy. But how do they work, and which would be best to use in this case? Electron microscopy would look at a difference in electron density, whereas fluorescence microscopy would look at a molecule tagged with something that glows, and you can use the glow to say where things are. So we could look at how certain molecules move on a T-cell surface with fluorescence microscopy, whereas you could not do that with electron microscopy. We're going to be having a look at some human T-cells. First, we're going to use normal white light microscopy. So this is what you'd see in a typical biology lab in schools and essentially what you'll see is a spherical blob. Is that a technical term? No it's not a technical term at all but it's the best way to describe what you're going to see. Wow that's incredible. These are human t-cells that I can see under the microscope and what I can see is like Ed said these spherical blobs but I can also see these little lines coming out of these spherical blobs. What are they? Those are microvilli. These are long fingers that the T-cell will use to help it scan for a pathogen. So these fingers, I can faintly see them. Can we just use electron microscopy to have a look at the structure of them? Electron microscopy would do that very well, but it can't necessarily look at the single molecules that are involved when the T-cell would make a decision over whether something is a foreign invader or whether it's uh, something that's meant to be there in your body. Now, this is where a type of fluorescence microscopy comes in called super-resolution microscopy. Super-resolution microscopy is a type of fluorescence microscopy technique. You sacrifice temporal information, time, for spatial information, space. You can have a look at anything, to be honest, so long as you can tag it with a fluorescent dye. We're able to stick it on a microscope illuminate it with our laser, and a subset of these fluorescent dyes are turned on at different points in time. And by doing so, we create this image of a bunch of different points, which we can then collate together and get our data from. And that way, not only are you passing the diffraction limit of light, which is 250 nanometers, you're gaining information that's already there, just couldn't be seen in normal fluorescence microscopy But what processes happen on this scale? The T-cell example is actually one of those processes. A single T-cell receptor and the interaction between that and an antigen can lead to downstream signalling. So we need to be able to get down to single molecule scales where we can actually see what's happening on that level. How do you stop fluorescent molecules from turning on at the same time? So there's a few ways to do this. You can either use molecules that are photoactivatable, so will only turn on 
when exposed to UV light. You can use chemistry to help the molecules turn on and off. Or you can have probing solution that will bind and unbind. These three techniques are essentially the painter's palette for super-resolution microscopy. You've kindly labelled T-cell with a fluorescent molecule. And what are we actually going to look at when you image? So today we're actually going to look at the membrane of the T-cell. These structures, these fingers, actually play quite a big role in T-cell signalling. So we need to be able to accurately identify the structures. When I turn the lasers on, what you'll see is you'll see little flashes of, of light on the camera, so spots. And those spots are single molecules in your sample turning on. That's literally a single molecule that you see in their glow. Incredible. We're seeing this in real time. How long does it take to actually get an image or a structure of my cell? It'll take hours because every time that we look at a single molecule and decide where that is, essentially we need to build up the full picture of the T-cell. We need lots of molecules to turn on and build up this uh, pointillist image. Can we look at any other proteins on the cell at the same time? For sure. So with the cell membrane, what I've done is I've used a, a probe that will bind the cell membrane and then leave and bind on and off. If you wanted to look at a protein, you can use an antibody to bind that protein and again you'd have your fluorescent molecule there. All you really need for superres is a way to attach a fluorescent molecule to a target of interest and then secondly some way to make those molecules blink. Right, not quite the laser tag that I had in mind, but that's still pretty awesome. Well, it actually gets cooler. Ed finished imaging the human T-cell, and I took that work to Alex Spark and Alex Kitching, the co-founders of a nanotech company called Loom, so I could be fully immersed in the data. Ah, finally, a walk inside a human cell. If you want to see what I'm seeing, head to the Naked Scientist website and click on the link for this podcast episode. I've met up with the founders of Loom, a VR company that's based in London, to have a look at the human T-cell that Ed and I had imaged using a VR headset. Loom is a nano-imaging software company specifically working on super-resolution microscopy and the visualisation of 3D super-resolution microscopy data. But what is virtual reality? VR is where you're in a completely virtual environment and you interact with everything virtually. You have two screens in front of your eyes, which gives you 3D stereoscopic vision, and projected onto that as a completely digital environment. Instead of playing a video game in the traditional sense where you have a controller and you're looking at your character through a TV screen, you're actually in the video game. So when you look right, your character looking right. Can I step into this human T-cell that was imaged for me earlier this week? Step right this way. Right, I'm going to put the headset on. That's on. Where are the controllers? Okay, I think I've got them. So what do I have to do first? One controller goes in your left hand, the other on your right. They have some tactile thumb feedback and triggers on the back. So it's sort of like uh, an Xbox controller, but split in half. I'll load the cell up. I'm guessing menu and then yeah, this so, cell? Yeah, load data and then yeah, click that cell there. Oh, wow. That was really quick. That took like a couple of seconds to get up and there's about a million localizations in this one. What can I do in this zone now? First thing to always do is just move around it, check it out. We've done a lot of work to make sure there's absolutely no motion sickness you'll feel with VR. So you have complete smooth movement. I'm going to try and walk through this cell. This is incredible. I can see the fingers like... Ed was telling me these microvilli that are coming out of the cell and it looks absolutely beautiful. So you can grab, move the cell around, rotate your way around it. You can colour the cell by any dimension you want, not just X, Y and Z dimensions, but also intensity or frames. And you can also get into the more analytical parts and you can select, for instance, the fingers of the data 
and then you can go into the scripts and then run a certain analytical scripts on those areas that you've selected. I'll try and capture the single finger. And how easy is that? Because if I'm doing that on a screen, it's relatively difficult to get a single finger. Why don't you have a try? Okay, right. I'm going to navigate my way on this menu and see if I can figure this out. I think I've got it. Cool. Okay, and now can I analyse just the isolated data? Yes, and it'll be super fast as well. So there's so much I can do with this. There's visualisation, segmentation, exploration, and analysis. Those are the four. So I can basically hold this cell in the palm of my hand as well as stand well in the midst of it. And I think what's interesting is, because you're in a virtual reality environment, is you can make this data as small or as large as you please. That's wonderful. So you can literally just throw around the cell that we imaged. Bit, bit dangerous. Yeah, you don't want to throw around valuable data. How did you guys get into using VR as a visualisation technique? We met with Professor Stephen Lee at the Science Museum, where he was presenting their work in super-resolution microscopy. We saw their work, and thought it was quite underwhelming to just look at these massive three-dimensional point cloud structures of cells just using posters. We thought we could actually help with our VR experience to bring those to life a little bit. What can it show that a screen can't? If you have three-dimensional data, then looking on a 2D screen, what you can end up with is an obscurance. So you could have data overlaying data, so you can't see behind it. Whereas in VR, you'd be able to see that because you'll have two slightly different perspectives and you'll be able to move around it so you can get a rotation around it so you could perceive its three-dimensional nature. How can we use virtual reality to our scientific advantage? I think you can use it in two ways. In our case, we used it very much to try and reveal hidden insights within the data. So by analyzing it and using the VR as a medium to really dig deeper into the data. But I think another approach is also to bring people closer together to collaborate around and over this incredibly complex data. And I think there's a plethora of different applications from education, collaboration, and just VR is a great medium for those connections to happen in a digital way. I found it pretty amazing to try the VR kit on and to walk around this incredible cell. But I'm always a little sceptical of VR. Is it just a buzzword or will people actually become immersed into the concept? I think there's definitely um, some people on the warpath to VR. Like, I mean, famously Mark Zuckerberg, he did a press release internally to his company in 2015 that said we're going to completely transition the whole company and everything's going to be in virtual reality by, say, 2025. The world that maybe is portrayed by Mark Zuckerberg of like a, wearing the VR all the time, I don't think we're quite just there yet. But Apple are now bringing out a VR headset later this year, I think. Do you think that that will have a big selling point for the general public? It's yeah. the first step towards widespread adoption. It's going to be great for us and everyone who already has a presence in that space. Okay, I get the boasting now. That is incredibly cool. I know. What were those four things that you could do? So the four things were visualisation. So you can look at the data, you can walk around the data, you can have a look around it and share that experience with someone else. Exploration which is, again, walking in the cell, playing around with the cell, making it bigger, making it smaller in the palm of your hand, throwing it around. Not that much, though. (laughs) Um, Segmentation, so you're cropping maybe specific fingers that Ed had mentioned from the cell membrane. And then finally, analysis, where you're analysing those fingers, the isolated data, or the whole cell as well. And you can do that with a various number of scripts. And you were obviously standing still in like a static image of a cell. Do you think in the future there could be a way that we could be in a cell that's sort of live and in action and moving and we can look at the cell as it's functioning? Well, possibly, I think. I think what we can do is with the super resolution data is we can load the cell up in time. So you can see these fluorescent dyes that have come on 
in time. So I think Alex and Alex from Loom had both mentioned that there's different dimensions in which you can load the cell up in X, Y, Z, time, intensity. And that's for people to play around with. Nice. And and what specimen would you like to walk in next? You've done the T-cell. What would be next on your on your list? Uh, I think there's a number of things. Bacteria would be great to have a look at. Neurons. Mm. But I think, first of all, I'd love to be able to walk around in some brain tissue. Mm. I think that would be really powerful, especially for lots of neurological diseases that that are affecting a lot of the population. So Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and I think it'd be really exciting to know a little bit more about how we function. Yeah, definitely. And, and especially people who have genetic conditions where that affects proteins on cells and you can maybe tag them and see what's exactly different in the brain and be fully immersed in that. I think that's amazing. But for you, how did it feel to be fully immersed? Well, to be honest, it was an amazing experience and also really exciting for understanding the future of our bodies and how, how we work, just like Leeuwenhoek did, but in even finer detail. Brilliant. And now it's time for our question of the week. Otis Kingsman has been investigating whether there is a lunar link with how children behave. We got this question in from Sal. Is the behaviour of school students affected by moon phases? Well, that's an interesting one. Fiction stories are full of tales about werewolves. People who become feral and transform into a wolf-human hybrid during the nights of a full moon. But is there any particular grounds of science that shows this idea of the moon affecting our behaviour? I reached out to the clinical director of the Sleep Medicine Centre in Lisbon to give us answers. Hello everybody, I am Teresa Paiva, a sleep specialist from Portugal. A study in Germany in adolescents from 14 to 17 years of age displayed no lunar periodicity in objective physical activity, subjective sleep quality or time in bed. Pretty clear-cut answer. Well, Teresa thinks there's a bit more to it. The sweet light of the moon enabled nocturnal light to our ancestors. Full moon, however, seems to have important effects for sleep in adults, reducing its duration and its efficiency. Furthermore, indigenous communities in Argentina were compared with college students in the United States. In both groups, sleep starts later and is shorter on the nights before the full moon when moonlight is available following dusk. That's the key part of this question. Sleep. Students who don't get enough sleep often find the school experience to be more difficult. Tasks that involve planning are most impaired by tiredness. But just how important is the moon in this equation? A multinational study from 9 to 11 years old in 12 countries found that sleep duration differed significantly between moon phases. In fact, sleep was five minutes per night shorter during full moon compared with the new moon. In fact, the difference is very small and its significance in practice is questionable. Sleep deprivation plays a key part in a child's behavior at school. And whether it's caused by the moon or by other outside factors, it's still something we must be aware of. Thank you to Sal for submitting this question. Next week, we'll be answering Fiona's question of... How do I hear a voice in my head when I'm thinking? And can this voice be influenced by accents? Wait, I don't know if the voice in my head is Scouse or not. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, send it to chris at nakedscientist.com and we will do our very best to crack it for you. And that is all we have time for this week, but be sure to tune in next time for a Q&A special where we'll be joined by an ecologist, an astrophysicist, an AI researcher and a Nobel Prize winner who will be taking on your questions. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce, 
I'm Julia Ravy. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.